From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins. So glad that you have joined us today on Washington Watch. Thrilled to have you with us to spend this next hour together. We have some important updates, some exciting updates from the court system of all places. It really is a a change of pace to have exciting updates from the court system, but we do have some of those. And we're going to talk about some of that with Catherine Beck Foster from FRC. And then we are going to talk a little bit about conversion therapy bans and some news there, not only out of the court system, but out of the research wing as well with Peter Sprigg. And then Caleb Lyman, who's the director of research at the Beckett Fund on Religious Liberty, will talk to us about the latest findings from their Religious Freedom Index. Some interesting uh, developments that related to how young people are feeling about new about their faith in light of the coronavirus. And then we're going to close the show with John Cooper from the band Skillet, and who has written a book called Awake and Alive to Truth. And you're going to hear a highly successful uh, Christian and crossover artist, John Skillet, talk about what it means to be a a Christian museum, uh, a Christian musician in a in, in a world of art. That is really relativistic and, and has embraced this cultural idea that truth is is not um, fixed and is not something that applies to everyone at all times and in all the same ways. And how is he navigating that personally? And how should we navigate that? Our great conversation is going to be a quick hour. So glad that you're with us to start the conversation. We are going to get some updates on what's been happening in uh, the Fifth and the Sixth Circuits. Uh, Catherine Beck Johnson, who is a research fellow for the Legal and Policy Studies here at Family Research Council. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we are glad to have you because you are going to be the bearer of some good news today. Tell us what happened in the Fifth Circuit uh, out of the state of Texas on a Planned Parenthood case. Yes, it's always great to be the bearer of good news. And this is certainly a big pro-life victory coming out of the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit held yesterday that the Medicaid patients, therefore Planned Parenthood patients, did not have the ability to sue and bring a suit against Texas's determination that Planned Parenthood is an unqualified provider. So Medicaid, the Medicaid Act says that all qualified providers have to be funded through Medicaid. And in the wake of the Center for Medical Progress's videos, Texas's inspector general found that actually many of the Planned Parenthoods in the state were unethical and therefore were not qualified providers. So they made the decision to defund them. And in that, the Fifth Circuit held that Texas was able to do that without the Planned Parenthood patients challenging that decision. Well, that is good news. I suspect some in the audience um, might not recall immediately the Center for Medical Progress and the videos that they released and the significance of that case. If you would, uh, back up a little bit and give us some background about how this came to be, how those videos really kind of uh, launched a a kind of anti-Planned Parenthood mood in a lot of the states. 
These videos were incredibly powerful. The Center for Medical Progress went undercover and actually investigated Planned Parenthood and what they were doing with the baby parts that they were aborting. And it was discovered that Planned Parenthood, many of the offices were actually altering the abortion procedure unethically so they could then harvest the baby parts and sell them, which is incredibly gruesome and inhumane. And so these videos came to light and showed that this wasn't even just a one-off office of Planned Parenthood. This was happening in Planned Parenthoods across the country. And a lot of government officials then, rightfully so, took it upon them to investigate this and see what was really happening. And there, a lot of these government officials found that this was indeed occurring, that these videos proved without a shadow of a doubt that that's exactly what Planned Parenthood was doing. They were altering the procedures. They were selling these baby body parts. And so, therefore, they took action. And we really commend Texas for doing that. Is Texas the only state that has responded that way to Planned Parenthood in the last five years since those videos were released? They're not the only state. A lot of other states have taken action, but this Fifth Circuit case specifically dealt with the Texas Inspector General's decision to defund them. So it's a case out of Texas. Is it going to apply to any states other than Texas? It'll apply to all of the states in the Fifth Circuit, which includes Louisiana and Mississippi as well. Which is good news for those states. Do you know if if Louisiana and Mississippi also have similar prohibitions um, on using Medicaid funds with Planned Parenthood? Louisiana. Louisiana did take some action as well, so we are hopeful for that. The Fifth Circuit is actually not the only circuit that has ruled this way. The Eighth Circuit did as well. So there is a circuit split currently within the United States. Now, I understand there there was a a fairly narrow holding here in terms of who the plaintiffs were and the fact that, that Planned Parenthood initially found some women to kind of carry the water for them on their behalf in court, and the, the Fifth Circuit in this case said that you can't do that. Is it possible that we will see Planned Parenthood come back and try to get another bite of the apple, so to speak, and continue to carry this case forward? Yeah, well, like you said, it's definitely a win that Planned Parenthood can no longer prop up these women to, like you said, carry the water for them. I do think that it's very possible the Planned Parenthood could have could, you know, apply to the Supreme Court to then get a favorable ruling. Planned Parenthood was also a plaintiff in the case, so we'll see about the Planned Parenthood having standing making its way to the Fifth Circuit, but that's not something the Fifth Circuit ruled on in this case. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about the judges in this case, because we've heard a lot about the uh, the Trump administration has really been proud of the number of judges that they have had appointed to uh, the federal bench and, of course, the Supreme Court as well, uh, which has gotten the most attention. But how has that, how has the appointments over the last four years, uh, how did that affect this ruling that we saw out of the Fifth Circuit yesterday? Judges are incredibly important. As we can see, they they have the power to either let something stand or fall, and that you know impacts thousands of lives, if not millions, depending on how broad. But yes, the, all of the Trump judges, there were four Trump judges on this en banc, which is the whole Fifth Circuit that sat. Two of Trump's judges actually had to recuse from the case, but all of the Trump judges that sat on this case ruled in favor of the state of Texas and therefore against the Planned Parenthood plaintiffs. 
And so this just shows the power of judges. This shows how committed President Trump was to really appointing good, solid, conservative judges. And it's just crucial that the judges continue to uphold the rule of law. So we are incredibly thankful that the president and the and Senator McConnell were so strong on this, so successful on this, and as you said, appointed an unprecedented amount of judges. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. It, it's not just the fact that judges matter. It's also evidence of the fact that elections have consequences. Because in order for judges to get on a bench where they are making pro-life decisions and constitutional decisions, they have to be appointed by a president. They have to be confirmed by a Congress. And all those people get there because we elect them. And, and it's, I think it's important for us to just understand that and keep that in mind as we you know we walk into an election season and sometimes we don't love the candidates and it's like well that's not my favorite person so i'm not going to be able to vote for him just understanding the massive downstream implications that elections have far beyond the tenure of the people who who may be in office that you may have voted for and uh, and, and this is just another great example of that now Catherine. There's another case that I know that you're interested in out of Tennessee, uh, also a, a life decision. Tell us what happened there and, and why that's something else that can be encouraging to us. Tennessee passed a law saying that you cannot procure an abortion on the basis of the child's gender, race, or diagnosis of Down syndrome. And they, it was challenged, and there was an injunction placed on the law. But the Sixth Circuit just this week held, actually, this law can go into effect. And this is a huge win for pro-lifers. This is certainly a challenge to Roe. This shows that Roe might not be, and Casey, might not be as broad as people think it is. And this is really important as it's far past time for Roe and Casey to be overturned and for abortion to end in the United States. But it's especially heinous that children are being targeted and are being killed in the womb specifically on their identity of whether or not they're female, whether or not what their race is, or based on a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And so this law really points to enough with the eugenics, we're no longer going to allow specific targeting of these children based on their identity. And it's a really powerful law. Justice Thomas has written from the bench on this, the eugenics movement of abortion. And so it was really encouraging to see that this law is currently allowed to go into effect in the Sixth Circuit. And and that is really good news. It is a um, it, it's troubling to me that there would be opposition to the idea that you shouldn't kill someone based on their race, gender, or diagnosis of Down syndrome. And, and we hear a lot from around the globe about countries that claim to be to have eradicated Down syndrome, when in fact all that means is we have killed everyone who had Down syndrome. And that's not something to be proud of. But it, I think it's a powerful rhetorical point for us on the pro-life position to to, to force this issue, to make people confront the idea that in many ways, race or abortion is a way, is a form of eugenics. And that's part of its history and part of its purpose today, isn't it? That's exactly right. It's Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was not shy about her purpose and goal of eugenics, speaking at KKK rallies. This is, continues today as many, many Planned Parenthoods are located in minority neighborhoods. 
African-American women are 37% of the population, I'm sorry, 12% of the population, and over 37% of the abortions. It's very clear the purpose and the roots of abortion and how they continue today. And like you said, many children with Down syndrome are killed, and they view that as a cure, as if these people need some sort of cure. There's nothing wrong with them. They are wonderful people made in the image of God. And uh, like you said, elections have consequences. It was a Trump judge that was the deciding vote on this panel that chose to allow this law to go into effect. So once again, we're reminded of how many lives can be saved of the most vulnerable of the vulnerable, the special needs children in the womb. And we have to thank a Trump judge. You mentioned Justice Thomas, who has made the connection in his opinions between eugenics and abortion. Do you have reason to think that that is an argument from the pro-life position that will be persuasive to other judges moving forward if a case like this one out of Tennessee ultimately uh, ends up being a challenge to Roe? I certainly do. Having a Supreme Court justice willing to write from the bench of the history of abortion and encouraging other judges below him to also protect the unborn and to recognize the history is incredibly powerful. So we thank Justice Thomas for having the courage to write on this. Catherine Beck Johnson, FRC Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a good one. Stay with us on the other side of the break. We're going to talk to Peter Sprig, FRC Senior Fellow for Policy Studies, about the latest developments on sexual orient change effort therapy. Some more good news out of the courts and the research as well. Stay with us. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll... It was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All of these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. 
Again, that's frc.org slash worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I'm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. It's my pleasure to be doing so, and we are delivering you some news to be thankful for as we lead into Thanksgiving. One other story in the last couple of days is it relates to conversion therapy, sexual orientation change effort therapy. There's a lot of different names for it, but it's basically... The conversations that take place between therapists and people who struggle with unwanted same-sex attraction. Now, because everything dealing with same-sex attraction is highly political and highly controversial, this therapy has been highly controversial. But, and part of that controversy is efforts in various states, and I think there's more than a dozen now, maybe even getting close to 20, who have said it is illegal to help somebody get rid of same-sex attraction if they have it and if they want that therapy, that you therapists are not allowed to help them with that particular uh, pain point. This has raised lots of constitutional questions about whether it's appropriate or whether it's constitutional, whether it's legal for a state legislature to jump into a therapist's office and tell a client and a therapist that you are not allowed to have this conversation. And... To have this conversation and to tell us a little bit more about the latest, I'm going to bring in Peter Sprigg, who's FRC Senior Fellow for Policy Studies. Peter, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joseph. Well, Peter, catch us up on what happened uh, in the court system this week, in the 11th Circuit, I believe it is, uh, around sexual orientation change therapy. Yes. Well, as you said, um, uh, all, about 20 states and uh, dozens and dozens of uh, local governments across the country have passed these uh, these therapy, what we call therapy bans. Most of them prohibit sexual orientation change efforts by licensed mental health providers with minors. Uh, two of these local uh, ordinances in Florida, one in the city of Boca Raton and one in the county of Palm Beach, were challenged in a lawsuit uh, filed by our, our friends at Liberty Council. And on uh, on Friday, last Friday, the 11th Circuit, a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit, struck down these two therapy bans. They ruled that these ordinances are content-based and viewpoint-based restrictions on speech and thus violate the First Amendment. So this was a tremendous uh, 
a victory for those of us who uh, oppose this t- kind of draconian restriction upon uh, people's freedom of choice with respect to therapy. Uh, the first time that a federal appeals court has struck down one of these laws. Now, Peter, I know the proponents of these bans claim to simply be opposed to abuse. They don't want people to be shocked. They've, you know, tell stories about ice, ice baths, shock therapy, just stuff that most of us think of as torture. Why is it not appropriate for state legislatures to step in on behalf of clients and say, therapists, you cannot torture uh, your clients? Well, the type of uh, of activities that you're describing are what is called aversion therapy, and those were at one time practiced uh, with respect to homosexuality back in uh, the 1960s and 1970s, uh, part of a, a kind of a psychological fad called behaviorism that was also used for to try to you know help people quit smoking and things like that, where you uh, uh, associate a negative physical stimulus with the uh, homosexual arousal in an effort to um, eliminate the homosexual arousal. That type of therapy has not been practiced for decades in the United States. And, um, and so what we are talking about today is just ordinary talk therapy. There is really no technique being used um, in the, uh, other than just a therapist talking with a client. And in fact, um, even though they raise these issues of these horror stories about aversion therapy when they uh, lobby for these bans, the language of these restrictions is quite clear. The only thing that is being banned is the goal. The goal of changing sexual orientation is what makes the therapy illegal, not any particular technique. So um, that's why the, the court was so clear that this was a restriction of free speech, because the only thing that happens in the therapist's office, office is speech, and that these localities still made it illegal. And I think there's an interesting little footnote in all of this is when we talk about conversion therapy, the bans always apply to not only sexual orientation, but also to gender identity. And the perverse outcome of these bans has been that a therapist um, cannot help somebody change their sexual desires, but must help someone change their gender if they want to. So it's this bizarre uh, mandate from a legislature. It says, well, if a boy wants to be a girl, the therapist has to help that. But if somebody who deals with same-sex attraction doesn't want to have same-sex attraction, they cannot do that. And I think logically we recognize that's much more about politics than it is about um, therapy or any kind of real science. And speaking of science, Peter, You have just done a publication, No Proof of Harm. 79 key studies provide no scientific proof that sexual orientation change efforts are usually harmful. Now, this stands in in stark contrast to what we hear repeatedly, that any attempt to change uh, someone's sexual desire, sexual interest, is certain to lead them to suicide. What did you find? Well, uh, I looked at these 79 studies. I was intrigued when I first saw this list, which um, was published in a book by a friend of mine, Christopher Doyle, that was published last year (laughs) about this issue. And he received it. Chris is a licensed psychotherapist and an ex-gay himself, but um, he uh, is acquainted with a man named Lee Beckstead, who is a therapist who is 
a gay-identified former Mormon in Utah who opposes this type of therapy, and he had sent uh, Christopher Doyle this list. I was intrigued by this because I was do I was doubtful that this could be accurate that there were this many sources with measures of harm. So I decided. Um, to do a literature, what's called a literature review, where you just review this entire body of literature and um, uh, sort of summarize what it says. And I found that there was no convincing evidence that proved that this is this type of therapy is usually harmful um, to the clients who undertake it. Well, that is controversial uh, for sure because the the um, narrative. It almost goes unchallenged uh, in, in our common conversations about this. Is that it, it is harmful. It's going to lead people to kill themselves. And, um, of course, we're all thrilled and not surprised to find out that maybe that's not actually true. Peter Sprague. Actually, it, it prevents some people from killing themselves. That's what, we've, what some of the studies found. Which is an important point. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Stay with us across the break. We are going to talk to Caleb Lyman about their Religious Freedom Index and what it tells us about young people. Stay tuned. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The Federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. One of the uh, things that have been studied with coronavirus and all of the 
implications for freedom and all the implications for our economy and small businesses is how people have responded to this virus personally, spiritually, socially, in other words. And the Beckett Fund on Religious Liberty has done some work on this to finding out how people are responding to this. And I'm going to bring in for this conversation Caleb Lyman, who's the director of research at Beckett Fund, to help us understand what they have learned. Caleb, thanks for joining us on Washington Watch. Yeah, glad to be here, Joseph. Well, we are glad to have you, and we are thrilled that you are doing this Religious Freedom Index, this research, because like you, we understand that religious freedom is really important, and we understand the role that it plays in people's lives. Uh, Before you get into the details of this year's results, tell us, what is it that you hope to accomplish with this index? Yeah, the index is just in its second year, and really the reason why we started doing the index in the first place because we realize that religion plays a really deep and important role in so many Americans' lives and in American culture in general, but that polling really wasn't reflecting that. You know, the, the polling that we saw on religion and religious liberty so frequently was just about the most hot topic issues of the day or the most controversial issues. So we created the index to try to get a really holistic view of the way that Americans are feeling about religious liberty and the way that it intersects with culture and the law, etc., and to be able to track those changes over time. So the, the index is made up of 21 questions that stay the same every year and create like a, a composite index score. And we track that over time to be able to see, to give like a general view of the way that Americans are feeling about religious freedom, which, which is something that we really didn't see out there, you know. And we do, we, there were so many aspects of religious freedom that were not being pulled on. And so it was an effort to be able to track the trends in religious freedom and also be able to start some conversations about the depth that religious freedom has, not just the the most hot topic issues that it touches upon. When you did the 2020 version of this, what are some things that stood out to you? Yeah, this year was really interesting because, like I said, we have those 21 questions that are the same every year, and those make up the index. But then we also asked more than 50 other questions about things like COVID, about racial justice, about the elections and the way that those inter- interact with religious freedom. And our three key findings this year were, one, that Americans are weathering the storms of 2020 anchored by their faith, that there's a real sense of stability in religion and faith, and that also people are firm in their opinions on religious freedom, even in this year where everything that can happen will happen. Uh, the Kind of the second thing that we saw was that religious identity cannot be quarantined, that religion isn't just something people do, it's part of who they are, and that people really want the protections for religious freedom to reflect that reality for, for people. And the last one, uh, which is a really interesting one, uh, we found two leadership gaps. The leadership gaps were in defending racial justice and religious freedom, that people of faith really want their faith communities to step up and defend racial justice, and that the voters want elected officials to take religious freedom seriously. Those are kind of the three key findings from this year. And that last that last point kind of leads into my next question. That do you mm-hmm. do you believe? Because there's some there's some question. Because as as there's this conflict between uh, the First Amendment and really the sexual revolution is how I would frame that. Um, and there's this sense, and and it's it's said very overtly, oftentimes, that religious freedom is really just an excuse to discriminate. Do you think that? that idea is penetrating where people see religious freedom as something uh, that is 
kind of an excuse and something that's less important now because of how the culture is changing? Yeah, you know, we definitely hear that, that, that often people are saying, oh, religious freedom or religious uh, ideals are just an excuse for bigotry. And it's so sad because we see, and from the index results, that that's really not the way people see it. Uh, we asked uh, respondents this year, and this is a nationally representative sample of American adults. So it's not just people of faith or it's not just conservatives or something. It's, it's people from both parties, from all over the country, male, female, all, uh, all ethnicities, et cetera, right? And 60% of the respondents said that religion for some people is a fundamental part of who I am. So that in and of itself isn't, you know, that surprising, right? But then the second part of that phrase was that and should be protected accordingly. So 60% of people see both that religion is part of who people are. It's not just, you know, something that people are making up to discriminate against others or something like that. It's part of who it's part of people's identity, and it should be protected accordingly. The protection should be strong because it's something people can't change. You know, religion is one of the deepest and most sincere and important part of people's lives. So, we definitely see pushback against that idea that religion or religious freedom is just an excuse for bigotry. I don't think Americans see it that way at all. I hope that is true. You know, in the, in the title of your index, you, you say it says Americans still believe religion is a force for freedom. What is the connection mm-hmm. in your mind between religion and freedom? That's a great question. I think religion is part of uh, every individual's search for truth. Right? It's kind of part of the most be a way that individuals can search for truth and that has to that can't be compelled you can't force somebody into truth so when we see people seeking out religion and uh, using religion to navigate the challenges of their lives it's, it's part of that freedom to be able to seek that truth and to be able to seek a higher power and understand how you should act accordingly I think that's a really good point Caleb Lyman director of research at the Beckett fund thank you for joining us today and, and I, I want to close that off by saying you also need freedom because if if you cannot control yourself, government will control you. So you have to be able to control yourself, and government allows you to do that. Or the Religion is one of the ways that that is done best. On the other side, we're going to talk to John Cooper from Skillet. You're going to love this conversation. Stay with us. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. 
In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins. This next guest I am really excited about. Um, we are... This is a political show, often, Washington Watch, where we get to talk about uh, what's going on in Washington, D.C., what's going on in the news, how does this affect your life, and what can you do about it. This is something that's a little different genre, and I am I'm excited to bring in, and I'm going to let him introduce himself in a lot of ways, uh, John Cooper from Skillet. And Skillet, because I know you and the audience are a lot of political nerds, you might not even know that Skillet is a band, but a lot of us who do like music. We know that Skillet is a band, and it's been in a really interesting space between uh, rock music, but also crossover to re- reach a, a, a segment of the culture that doesn't necessarily listen to Christian music all the time. And to tell you more about his story, and an important book that I think, uh, coming from this source, makes it even more important. Uh, John Cooper, welcome to Washington Watch. Hello, how's it going, man? Well, it's going really well, and I and I'm I'm really happy to be able to talk to you. You know, I, I did a little show prep uh, to uh, get myself ready for this conversation with you, and and I think you and I actually have a few things in common. Um, one name that you dropped was Bill Gothard from your childhood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, 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 and it's funny to have this conversation with you because my brother actually got kicked out of a Bill Gothard related training institute because he listened to Petra. Oh wow! Yeah, and and he and he had a conversation with Bill Gothard, and he did not get an acceptable biblical answer about why he should not listen to Petra, and uh, because they couldn't see eye to eye on that, um, he was gone. And I feel like you can relate to that story a little bit. That is really funny. Yeah. Okay. So my name is John Cooper. I sing for the the, the rock band Skillet. We are a Christian band, but as you mentioned in my introduction, we do. 
I'd say at least half of our touring, probably more than half in the secular rock market. Uh, but yes, I grew up uh, in a Christian family. My mom was a Jesus fanatic, and, and I mean that in all the best ways possible. My mom loved the Bible, taught me the Bible ever since I was a kid. But we were definitely a part of that group in the 80s, even into the 90s, of like that rock music was the worst thing in the entire world. I went to the Bill Gothard Institute for Christian Living. You know, I went to the seminars. I read the books. And I, I just kept, even as a young person, even as a sixth-grade kid, I was like, I just still don't understand because my mom taught me that God creates everything. The devil creates nothing. The devil distorts things. So why doesn't that just mean that music belongs to God and the devil has distorted it and that I can listen to Christian music because Christian music is reclaiming something that God created and putting it back under the lordship of Christ where it belongs. So that is kind of my testimony, why I love Christian music and why I believe that that Christian music, uh, that music glorifies God and that the songs that I sing uh, can be evangelistic as well. And I know that you've also done a, an incredible job on behalf of the gospel of reaching people whose ears are not otherwise inclined to listen. And, and I think that's an important space for Christians to live in. And, 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 and we are supposed to be salt and light in the world. And, we, and, and in this, in the context of the show, we talk about this a lot in politics. But remembering that Jesus is Lord over absolutely everything, every space, every square inch of the universe, uh, he has claimed as his as Abraham Kuyper would say. And, and I just thank you for what you're doing because I know, because I agree with you, that that space, as every space, needs to be claimed for the, for the Lordship of Christ by those who are his. Well, that's great to hear. I, I, I'm glad that you think that. Yeah, I'm definitely, definitely try to throw as much speed as we possibly can for, for the great name of Christ and, and you know, evangelism. And sometimes we, you know, we're called with Skillet to stand up for something that I believe in that's maybe a culture moment, or it's a moment if I feel the church at large are getting conflicting messages. Maybe that's a good way to say it. And we are living at a time, are we not, of conflicting messages even within the church? And uh, I've been scratching my head about that, and so that's something I'm very passionate about, and I see it because we have a lot of young fans, I see it every concert we play. I see these kids are confused, and it, it, they, they're growing up in a world of chaos and, and relativistic truth, even in the church. And so I think we, could, we can do a better job. Yeah, and, and I want to talk about that because a, a lot of times the, the the conversations that happen within the church about Christian mu- musicians is when somebody has kind of announced their deconstruction, and they're basically they're falling away from the faith. And this is very different because we're we're having this conversation in the context of a book you've written called "Awake and Alive to Truth." So that seems like the opposite of a deconstruction. What makes your experience in your life different, though you've been living in that same industry? What makes you different from others who have walked a different path? Well, I mean, I'm just so thankful to God that that he has kept me. And I think for me, it has been a celebration of of the foundational principles of the gospel, not getting away from those, but digging back down into those. Um, And what you really end up seeing a lot, I found, whether it's Christian music or 
itinerant speaking and things like that, a lot of times what can happen is that people get away from the foundational things that, that they believe. A lot of times they're not even in a church. They don't have a local body, and we are not meant to, you know, to be outside of the body of Christ. We are meant to be inside the body of Christ. So I'm a very big proponent for uh, having uh, a church life with leaders and authority and brothers and sisters and and I think that's made a really big difference for us. So, so for me, it's always coming back to the Word of God as the ultimate source of authority. And I think a lot of the times, you know, we get out into the world and play music and Christian music and that world, and, and they, they just get away from those foundational principles of the Word. And I, I think that's really dangerous. I think that's a great point and a great reminder. You do have to stay rooted um, because once you do, once the foundations are destroyed, what can the people do, right? Now, you have – you are parenting teenagers. I have teenagers. There's a lot of people in our audience who are, as parents – Basically trying to do what it appears your mom has done, and you you gave your mother a lot of credit there a moment ago for this idea that that I'm going to raise somebody who's going to be in the culture, who's going to make a difference in the culture, but who's going to be unaffected by the culture. As a parent, and I know that you've written part of this book, reaching an audience of young people in part, but... What 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 are the things that your parents did well that you're trying to replicate with your children that you think can uh, put somebody in a position to be in the culture but unaffected by it? Oh, great. I do have two teenagers, 18 and 15. And both of my kids, thank the Lord, uh, are walking with Christ, uh, you know, been born again. And I'm so thankful to God for that. You know, things that I love to encourage parents on, because, you know, a lot of my friends are, uh, uh, have parents of young kids, and I always encourage them, number one, uh, as we all know, if you're a parent, <laughs> you can't teach your kids stuff that you don't know. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. <laughs> it just right. doesn't work. You know, they're going to do what they see you doing. And so I always encourage parents to say, hey, you need to pray with your kids. But if you're not someone who prays, they're, they're going to pick up on that. So I would encourage parents to dig into the Word of God and, and to learn uh, how to pray if that's not something you do. And then I always encourage my friends uh, th- that your kids are never too young to start teaching them about uh, uh, the greatness of God and, and how amazing uh, it is that God even knows my name, that He cares about me. And, and a worldview that teaches that it is all for God's glory. It's not about what you want. It's not about what you think you deserve. It's not about what you feel. Everything is for his glory, and that's why you are here. And I, I just try to do that in daily lessons with my kids to always teach them about a great God that is big. And, and in my experience, they are never too young. I mean, most of the Bible verses that I still know <laughs> were, are all things I learned from my mom at, by age five. And, uh, and, and they were foundational principles for me, and I want to pass that along to my kids. Now, your, your book, Awaken Alive to Truth, has a subtitle, Finding Truth in the Chaos of a Relativistic World. I want you to expand a little bit more on this idea of finding truth in the chaos of a relativistic world. In your observation of young people, of people at concerts, just people that you interact with, and maybe even your own children, where do you, uh, what's the connection for you between chaos and a relativistic world? 
Well, I mean, the idea, of course, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners know this. I just always say in case people don't. The idea of relativism, the basic principle is this. There is nothing that is absolutely 100% true, and there is nothing that is absolutely moral, nothing that is absolutely immoral. Everything is relative, relatively true. It's a, what's true to me might be different than what's true for you. And so I, I see these kids. These kids are being raised in a world where the only way they can know it's true is to go on social media and find out. And they have to do that every week, every day. Uh, every day you find out, here's the things you're allowed to say. Here's the things you're no longer allowed to say. Here's what you have to believe. And so now we've entered into a time when all you got to do is turn the television on, and you will find some of the most godless, depraved, uh, atheistic, rebellious people against Christ are also named the most virtuous people on the planet. And how can that possibly be, be true? We know that's not true. So our kids are being raised in a society that they can't count on anything. They can count on nothing. And I wrote about some of those stories in my book to explain to things. Let me give you an example. A friend of mine is telling me the story about one of his friends. They've been married for 17 years, and the husband is leaving the family because he has decided that he is now homosexual. And the wife was saying, well, at first it was hard for me, and if he had left me for a woman, it would have been unforgivable. But because he is coming into his truest self, I know that to love him means that I need to celebrate it. And so she's having a party for him leaving their family to embrace his truest self. That is what relativism does. We, we have no principles. You can't count on anything. Up is down. Black is white. Wrong is right. Everyone is confused. And so I thought maybe I could write a book that I like to call Theology for Dummies. It's people, that, it's people like me that have a hard time sitting through a John Calvin book, but this is a book that you can read and you can understand. It talks about original sin, talks about not trusting your emotions, and then it gives you two clear paths to find truth. One path is through Jesus Christ, and it leads to life. The other path is, tr is through following your own heart or your own emotions or what celebrities tell you, and that path is going to lead to destruction. What is your observation or maybe even your lived experience uh, with the idea that uh, we just need to follow our hearts? We just need to do what makes us happy, that our, our, our feelings are the guide to truth and our guide to fulfillment. And to the extent that we follow our feelings and our heart, we will become yeah. happy. And to the extent that we suppress those things and deny our authentic selves, as it is often framed, then we're going to be unhappy. Yeah, I think that, that, that uh, this is a great example of that, the, the couple that I just told you about. And, 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 and this guy's, you know, in this guy's heart, he's following his heart to his, his most authentic self, whatever phraseology you, you prefer. And in doing so, he is destroying his marriage, and he's destroying his kids. But that's what makes him happy. So at some point, everyone's greatest happiness is in threat to everyone else's greatest happiness. So I, I do have a chapter in the book that warns us about following your heart. I mean, and if you do some his, historical research, 
and to see the, the amazing amount I mean, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but the amazing amount of dictators who claimed that they were doing something for a good reason, the amazing amount of, of murderers and, and just the most depraved individuals in human history are convinced they're doing something good. This is going to help people, or this is the way the world should be. This is just who I am. So I do think we're in danger of that, and I think I would just remind everybody that that this is happening in the world and in the church, because once you look at, at the world through a relativistic you know, viewpoint, if you look to the Bible through that same relativism, then you can begin to make the Bible mean anything you want it to mean. And, and that is the danger, and that's why the church is being ripped apart into Christians who believe that the Word of God is authoritative and to other people that say, oh, I really love Jesus. I just don't think the Bible is meant to be taken that seriously, and that's the danger. I, I think that's a really great point that really the, the difference between the left and the right in the church really boils down to do you think the Bible says what it appears to say, or do we reserve to ourselves the right to be the editor of the Bible? John Cooper, we have about one minute left. Um, what do you hope that people who read your book will come away with? I think, first of all, it's a very, it's a very evangelistic book. It, it leads up into a gospel presentation, and it gives people an opportunity to, to pray that prayer if they want and to ask God to make them into a new creation. It talks about repentance. It talks about sin and the fact that a holy God has to punish sin. So it's very evangelistic. But I also hope for Christian people that it makes them more secure about the things they believe and gives them strength to stand up for it. John Cooper from Skillet, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I loved it. Thank you. Friends, we do have Thanksgiving. The, the, the book is called Awake and Alive to Truth, Finding Truth in the Chaos of a Relativistic World. Find it if you can. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you're having a great week. We will see you tomorrow. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 